I'm just switching over to my professional world here for a second. My professional world is something that we would want and hope architecture students to begin to feel about their own agency in the world. Yeah. That actually you you shouldn't be pathologizing the crazy ideas that you have or thinking that the world doesn't need to hear from you or that those things have to remain stuffed inside what we ordinarily consider to be, let's say, a sensible, mm-hmm. responsible architectural tropes and techniques. Sometimes the role of their teachers, it maybe is something like the role, your professional role mm-hmm. as a dominatrix is to say, you know what? You have your highly individual wants and desires and needs and fantasies and fetishes. Mm-hmm. And actually those are the most valuable things that you can bring to the world because they force us to imagine different things. For sure. And I also wonder, you know, taking from my practice and putting it into your classroom, like maybe there can be some collective like shame, like public humiliation thing that goes on where everyone just discloses the thing that they're totally embarrassed or feeling guilty about and everyone can just boo them and boo each other. And then like to give voice to that anxiety and that fear, I think can be like a super powerful tool to like breaking free from it. Yeah, you could be right. I'm just thinking about that as like an alternate format for final reviews. We yes. do have collective shame exercises at architecture school. It's called final reviews. <laughs> <laughs> but but we're not, it's the other way. Shame is being given, not shame being admitted. Right. So maybe we could flip that. Yeah, we just invite them into their own shaming and to claim it and to like, you know, repeat the shaming stuff that is this thrown is terrible. at them. <laughs> it could be a great thing. <laughs> Well, let me know how it works out. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SciArc. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. This episode is about roughness. We're going to discuss roughness in three different ways. First, we're going to look at what it means to sleep rough in Los Angeles, where homelessness has exploded to become one of the most critical issues facing the population of this city. Then we're going to look at a recent exhibition in the SciArc Gallery by one of our design faculty, Mira Henry, called Rough Coat. Finally, we're going to consider roughness in the culture of BDSM, where roughness becomes a form of empowerment and also a way of inflicting pleasure rather than pain. This is The Ark, coming to you from SciArc, Los Angeles. Act One, Liz Hirsch on Living Rough. I'm actually here to talk about an avocation, a kind of passion that you took on when you came to LA and you realized some of the social issues that were confronting the city. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in the homeless crisis here in Los Angeles? It's a topic that is really heavy, really rough in every sense of the of the word. My involvement begins with moving out here and and seeing homelessness the way that you, you one does um, when you live here. LA has had a sort of containment zone known as Skid Row for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's more recent in LA is is the fact that homelessness is no longer restricted to that to that part of town in a very visible way. You encounter homelessness almost anywhere you 
Go in Los Angeles. I began doing um, some organizing work with the Democratic Socialists of America Los Angeles chapter that have a very active committee for housing justice, housing and homelessness committee. And specifically within that committee, there's an initiative called Street Watch, which is basically a campaign designed around solidarity with the unhoused tenants of Los Angeles. Solidarity sounds different. It's not a word that you would expect to hear in conjunction with homelessness. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I think with charity, you see the offering up of some things that can be of real benefit to a person in in a moment um, that's very temporary, but there's no real pushing within the charity model for a a structural shift that will truly redefine the circumstances that individuals and groups of people find themselves in. We have homelessness because housing is a commodity. If we were to decommodify housing and say that, you know, it's a human right, it's something that everyone is entitled to, then we wouldn't see homelessness the way that we see it here. There's a sort of essential disconnect between the amount of people who need housing in Los Angeles and the amount of housing that is just truly unaffordable to not even just um, average people, but even to wealthy people um, at this time because things have gotten so out of control. And um, and 600,000 Angelinos apparently spend 90% of their income on their rent. Also, between 2010 and 2018, landlords filed 505,924 eviction proceedings in Los Angeles County. And I'm sorry to get in here and just immediately (laughs) throw numbers at you, but I I can't resist because it it, it feels like there's a very direct connection between those who lived in LA up until very recently inside of a house, you know, indoors, and who are now living outdoors, even though the perception, unfortunately, often remains that those who are living on the streets kind of came from from somebody somewhere else, some other city where it's not so warm and sunny. It seems hard for me to believe that this is only a question of affordable housing because it seems like there's a lot of uh, people that need uh, mental uh, health services that are out on the street that may not be in a position to receive even the inadequate help that's offered to them? I think that these actually do not need to be incompatible perspectives on the issue. I think what you're raising is really key in that you're pointing out the fact that it's the need for services and an investment rather than a divestment in mm-hmm. things like mental health and, and other forms of treatment are, are super key, right? If you give a person housing and they no longer have to face the, the stress and trauma of everyday life living on the street, there is an immediate possibility that they can become connected with another just version of themselves yes. that, that makes life livable, right? There are some people that have, like you said, they've gone through trauma, they're dealing with addiction, trying to get back on their feet, they have a disability, whatever the case may be. And I don't think that we should penalize them. I think the whole idea of having a fair and just society is that we pick up and care for those people who can't pick up and care for themselves. This is a serious moment for a conversation around how we might invest in social housing, public housing, community land trusts, and 
seriously, in my view, taking money away from police budgets that simply help us to disappear folks that are homeless, criminalize arrest. I mean, I could sit here and 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 go through, you know, talk to you about ordinances like 5611, like 4118D, like you might start to glaze over. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that these are actually really important dimensions to the problem. Like if you talk to uh, community advocates or members of the, the city government or members of the police force, they will reference these ordinances all the time as like the rule book by which the entire game is laid out in the city. So I do think it's, I promise I won't glaze over that much. A friend of mine named Harvey lives, which is over near the El Pueblo, you know, sort of that historic area. Yes, Harvey's lived there for close to 13 years, I think. And when they opened the first bridge shelter, the sort of trial, you know, pilot shelter, he fell into sort of that zone of if you're not getting a bed in the shelter, you may be policed out of the vicinity. And they do regular sweeps of where he lives because he falls into that radius. Um, and something that DSALA's Street Watch does is we coordinate outreach basically to to him and his neighbors where we're, we're there on a weekly basis kind of monitoring how these cleanups go um, and talking with folks about what they're noticing and how they're being treated on the ground. There are places where it feels like the police are all over a particular homeless community. It seems like certain homeless populations are targeted and um, others are uh, are let be. Police have the, the power to kind of cite certain ordinances and people receive tickets or arrests or warrants for arrest for things that they call quality of life citations, which are not harming anybody, you know, ostensibly. There's an ordinance on the books that limits how much personal property you can have. If you can picture what 60 gallons is, it's basically like those, the trash bins that many of us use to bring our trash out to the Uh curb, right? So that's the limit. You can have that much stuff. You can also have a tent. But what happens is that this law, 5611, is often used to justify the removal and often the destruction of personal property that people gravely need. You know, you are rapidly told you have 10 minutes or 15 minutes to get your whole life together and organized, or we're, we're, we're literally taking it, seizing it. Um, when I talk to Harvey... I hear heartbreaking stories about the stuff that has been destroyed and, and the sort of and the trauma that people have experienced sort of working to rebuild that loss over and over and over again in a way that is not helping them get out of homelessness. If people are living on the street and there is no good alternative to them living there, then they shouldn't have their civil rights being violated. And you have a constitutional right to exist no matter how much money you have. you know, For sure, and, yeah. But there's lots and lots and lots of groups um, on the left in LA that are horrified by um, how the how homelessness looks in this city and how homeless folks are, are treated. I think actually if we were forced to think of the laws on our books more as real objects and less as abstractions that may or may not be enforced on the ground, we would actually be forced in a more civic way to discuss some of the issues at hand. Whatever, even if it feels like it's not important to you, uh, we all have responsibility for this issue. We, we, we collectively yeah. do. And I think it's important for us to be creative about what we want to propose instead. We have 39, something 38, 39 billionaires in LA. In LA, you know, we can do this. Yeah. Like if we can bring the Olympics here, 
we can do this. And so, like you're saying, this importance of bringing creativity to it and the very you know intelligent and amazing and, and creative like young people that are doing things like studying design and architecture and urbanism at mm-hmm. this moment, like there are ways to approach this. What I would hate to see happen though is for the generation of students that like you and I are working with at SciArc to feel as though they are being used to say smooth over the roughness that has been caused structurally by the fact that housing um, is a commodity. 100%. Because they, they are too talented to, yep. be, to be cleaning up somebody's mess in that way. Liz Hirsch is currently working on her PhD at CUNY, where her research focuses on the art and architecture scene in LA in the 70s and 80s. She currently lives in Los Angeles. This episode is about roughness. In Act 2, we're going to look at a recent exhibition in the SciArc Gallery by one of our design faculty, Mira Henry. Called Rough Coat, the installation demands that we re-examine the significance of certain seemingly ordinary architectural materials. It also challenges what we consider to be architecture in the first place, as well as our seemingly innocuous decisions, like the colors we choose to paint our walls. The walls of the gallery are painted very dark brown, so dark that at first glance, it seems like they're black. Already this sets up a kind of closed, warm intimacy, which is unusual considering the gallery walls are normally painted a pretty stark white. Rough Coat is a playful interior landscape of soft, panelized systems. Visitors are invited to lounge and arrange the various elements to their liking. With all the parts snapping together, it can form a tightly organized facade or a limp, draped form. An architectural surface made out of soft material and a flexible stucco finish, the installation refers equally to an exterior of a building and a domestic interior. Mira, what was the inspiration for the show? Why did you call it Rough Coat? The reason why the project was called Rough Coat was that um, it was a part of the sort of vocabulary of working that we had to communicate with one another, like what got this, what got that, what was smooth, what was rough, what mm-hmm. was soft, what was... There was various sort of terms that were became sort of enacted in the process of communicating. Um, and so that was... Rough Coat was just one of them. I've been thinking about like the layers of render that goes on to... Um, um, a sort of building that, or finish that goes from like a scratch coat or what we call a brown mm-hmm. coat or yep. sometimes a rough coat and mm-hmm. then the sort of finished coat. So there's there's a lot of like kind of funny vocabulary around the layers of finish for plaster and stucco. So the rough coat or the brown coat or the scratch coat are all things that get covered up mm-hmm. and then usually a finished coat goes over it. And so this was also an important sort of object lesson to sort of situate the sort of content as something that maybe otherwise would have been covered. So is it about a process of reveal? Right, something that's normally covered up, considered unfinished, being treated as finished, and also being displayed as an aesthetic object. Um, And then also there's a variety of finishes on the surfaces, on the blanket-like surfaces, on these quilted surfaces too, that's matched with different colors. Could you talk about the colors a little bit? So done projects that all sort of try to problematize questions of color, um, the language of color. So these meant to correlate to skin tones? So like you match that color, right? Depending on where you stand. Do I? Yeah. We were looking at certain ways in which the colors could reference skin tones, but also be a little bit looser, also reference other things as well. But like some of the things that came up in our, and when we were working, we were talking about like, well, what color 
what color emoticon do you use for emoji do you use? What, kind of, what color thumbs up do you use? Yeah. Do I use the yellow one? Do I use the light brown one, dark brown one? Which ones mm-hmm. do you use? And like, yeah. can you, if I'm pink, can I still use the black one? Um, and, and there's all, there is quite an insistence on the language of upholstery. Like I'm, I'm looking at the quilting and the tufting um, on those pieces that are, they, they look, it's weird because there's, there's a dislocation that's happening between the texture that one's perceiving and the color that one's perceiving and then the upholstery effect that's been applied to them. How do you construct a sort of relationship between the, how something reads and how something, how you see it, how you would kind of experience it? So in this case, it looks soft, it is soft. It looks soft and it is soft, but then you touch it and it's also kind of rough and kind of pushes you away. And also because it has that latex quality to it, there is a kind of skin-like, there is a kind of unease that you get when you touch the stuff. It's not like super, it's not not super cuddly. It's not cuddly and it feels like it might have belonged to an animal of some kind. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of um, animal hides Mm -hmm. and thinking about skin tone. As soon as you start to read it as skin, it becomes... Um, really overwhelming mm-hmm. because then it looks like you're in a gallery of draped skin and a lot of it looks really rough and a lot of it looks like it, it in order to be that rough it must be from some really giant creature <laughs> you start to wonder like well, how big that animal was or how big that person was yeah 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 I love that I mean I I think that the scale piece was really really important in the project I mean and that's like one way to think about roughness is like roughness is super relative to scale obviously right as soon as you zoom in to, you can zoom into anything and it's rough but this this idea that it also sort of indicates this this kind of overscaling um, that was important when I when I wrote the idea that this was about trying to make a, um, a blanket like at the scale of an architecture I also want to point out that the the smoothest texture at the scale of a human um, is the lightest color yeah so corresponding to more of a Caucasian skin tone and the roughest texture is the darkest color and I'm wondering if there's a commentary there about uh, how people are perceived um, how people perceive whether or not they belong in certain kinds of architecture there's certainly all of that not necessarily in this piece but there's certainly that in like the in our in like the landscape of our field these are all referencing houses in South LA predominantly black neighborhoods and you know just the the temperature of the surroundings like the climate like literally like how hot it is people the houses have to cover themselves up the blanket in this case when it turns the scale of the architecture it looked a lot more like a bull of brew fest than it does a sort of cuddly blanket Maybe we can see an arch- the architecture as doing a lot more than just like um, like housing, but like pr- literally protect, literally protect the body, literally, literally protect the sort of the the interior. If you look at the amount of shades mm. um, in the room, mm-hmm. there's a, a privileging of darker shades. Yeah. So maybe a, a set of suggestions about a rough neighborhood, or what kind of ethnicities might constitute That's roughness. Only a white person would say that. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, I mean I there guess. is it. You're the one who yeah. made the light, the light yeah. Caucasian yeah. strips, the smallest, yeah. the the slimmest, and and the smoothest. Yeah. And yeah. then as it gets darker, it gets rougher. I wanted the project to work in in dark tones because I wanted to sort of resituate the sort of balance of color and that um, in the in the kind of atmosphere, like so that. It was um, it like shifts like the like the center way towards the darks. You know what happens like when you shift the kind of content of the work towards a deeper tone. How do you react? I wanted to you know work on uh, something that was that was brown. Like for me, like 
I'm brown. I wanted to have a brown piece in the in the gallery. Cyrus should have a brown piece in the gallery. You know, like just almost as simple as that. The show begins to suggest some kind of cocooning or batting or um, a pillow like of a padding, almost an insulation, but not an insulation the way we normally think of it, but an insulation uh, that can literally wrap and protect uh, at the human scale. Mm-hmm. And even though we think a lot about insulating our buildings, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily ask that our buildings have a kind of cuddling or protecting yeah. relationship to our bodies. Yeah. You said your initial uh, brief to your team was, how do you make a blanket at the scale of a wall? Yeah, or a building. A full, mm-hmm. uh, like, it's actually 18 feet by 18 feet, the blanket is. So it's, 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 it's the size of a, of a front of a building. I like the sort of empathetic, sort of relationship between the frame and the and the blanket. The other thing I told my students was that this is like this is going to be a really traditional tectonic project I told them. It's mm-hmm. going to be about how t- things come together, how it supports itself and resolving it in ways that we had to make decisions about in in real time because we weren't working in with anything that we were used to working with. We were saying, I'm not going to use the tools that we usually use. And so we're going to have to then still think about all the things that are architectural. That's to me is, that's what it means. Part of what being architect is to me. And this is where maybe roughness gets close to toughness, Mm. right? So, so the, the roughness here is also being able to kind of be tough enough to say, this is rough and this is the way I like it. For me, when the blanket hits the ground and the yellow gets dirty, you know, like that is also a part of the sort of kind of uh, yeah, reality of it. You can see images from the exhibition online at mirahenry.com forward slash rough coat. And finally, building up from rough to rougher, here is BDSM dominatrix, Mistress Lucy Khan. Lucy, even before we get into what you do, could you just explain what BDSM is? Sure. Happy to be here today. Thank Um, you for coming. Yes, of course. BDSM stands for bondage, discipline, sadomasochism. I've also heard it being bondage, dominance, and submission, and then sadomasochism, where it kind of doubles up on the D and S letters. Mm -hmm. And we associate being a dominatrix and BDSM with a certain kind of roughness where pleasure and pain are very tightly bound up with each other. Can you describe what you do? Sure. Well, in short, I am a professional top. And so that means people come to me when they have fantasies of submitting to a woman um, and kind of being put in their place. So these fantasies can be all over the place. They can involve physical pain, but oftentimes they really don't. They can be fantasies that are rooted in childhood, kind of replaying psychodramas that have happened in the past, or they can just be fetish fetish oriented sessions where it's more about like a body part, like a foot or even wardrobe, like heels or latex or a material like that. So, so that's the term, a top. Yeah. So if you think about the DS in uh-huh. BDSM, I really like to think about that as the core of what it is, uh-huh. dominance and submission. Mm-hmm. And so the top would be the dominant and then the bottom would be the submissive. Okay, so what kinds of things do you do? Like what are the services that you provide? There's definitely 
popular areas of interest that get touched on over and over and over again. So some of those would be like role reversal, where, you know, maybe the man wants to be treated like a woman in the porno. So um, like thrown down onto a piece of Oh, yeah, hair pulling, like, slapped around, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, gag, uh-huh. made cry, uh-huh. things like that. And then they can, they can also be like really tender too. Uh-huh. So, you know, where I'm like kind of like a mommy figure uh-huh. that's being very nurturing uh-huh. or, you know, so it really does run the gamut of like just human imagination, which Mm. is so beautiful about what I do. Yeah. I mean, it feels like you're bridging the gap between something that feels very out there and maybe a lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable admitting to, you know, other people, but then also making that a very safe place. I mean, how much does consent play in your world? Oh my God. Consent is everything. So that's one of the things about the BDSM community that like I wish was just basic education, basic sex ed education for like everybody because it all starts with the negotiate an explicit negotiation. Like, mm-hmm. hey, my name is blank. I am into X, Y, and Z. I am not into A, B, and C. Uh, I would love to see you for a session if our interests correspond. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's all laid out there. Not to say that everything's like scripted or <laughs> predetermined, but that um, there is a basic level of understanding of what will and can happen and what definitely won't happen if that's not desired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the other things that people ask you to do or ask you to participate in? One that I particularly enjoy, and that's been coming up a lot, is cuckolding. What is that? So um, cuckolding is basically a scenario where a woman and a man are, you know, engaged or married or, Uh you know, together. Uh But then the woman is having sex with another male partner. Uh And then the partnered male is kind of made submissive to that scenario, either by being forced to watch Uh his partner being pleasured by this superior alpha male. Wow. Okay. So like, so that's something that would involve you obviously working with with two people. Yes, but sometimes it can be fantasy as uh-huh. well. But actually, you know, it's like the, for men to be able to watch their partners have that kind of joy and pleasure from someone else and to experience that compersion uh, versus jealousy, I think is so beautiful and like secure. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like it's a it's definitely a taboo mm-hmm. in mainstream thinking about what it means to be a male. But it's also something that happens in nature all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could also talk a little bit about the tactile aspect of roughness and how that plays a role in your work. Even when I'm doing like corporal session or corporal punishment sessions, which are kind of all about just administering physical discipline. Um, So that can be with various tools, such as, you know, as simple as my hand, Mm -hmm. to a flogger, to a whip, to a paddle. Okay, Um, what is a flogger? So a flogger, people will call them whips, but they're kind of, they look like a handle that is hard with a bunch of little strings, a bunch of little whips coming out the end. It's like a a BDSM pom-pom. Kind of, yes. (laughs) Never heard it called that. I might start a Twitter hashtag with it. (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, there's often this like this idea of building up of roughness, right? Uh Like starting off softly so that in the end you can take more. Uh Because if you go right in from like nothing to, you know, a heart of a smack as you can possibly give, that person might be done 
then and there. Yeah. And that's no fun for anybody. So it just short circuits the whole experience. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about like boiling a frog, you know, <laughs> you start off with like some light, gentle taps, you know, and then go into some smacks and then eventually, you know, take a little break, go back in, maybe caress the body part that you are uh, abusing. <laughs> and then you can kind of go back in and do this rhythm of incremental intervals of heightening the sensation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a way to move, I guess, from smooth to rough in a way that feels calibrated and feels uh, like you know what you're doing. Yeah. And there's theories too that the centers of pleasure and pain are very much intertwined in the mm-hmm. brain. And so that's why, you know, sometimes transgressive acts can also stimulate that kind of rush as well. So when I was on your Twitter feed looking mm-hmm. around, there was a particular maneuver that you were doing on there. What did you call it? We're, oh, ball busting. Explain what ball busting is, because we use that term a lot, just as a kind of, if we're talking ball busting. Yeah. Right. Ball busting is really simple. It's basically when you kick somebody right in the balls. And, yeah, <laughs> and, they, and they take pleasure. Out, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, people fall in different areas of the spectrum on there. So where it's oftentimes a combination of pleasure and pain. Yeah. Yeah. And so this particular person, it was a guy who I was just busting in the balls over and over and he was just standing there, right? Yes. Taking it like nothing even happened. Yes. So he is definitely an anomaly and an extreme <laughs> example of the ball busting enthusiast because he shared with me that he has been doing this for like over 30 years. Wow. And it all started with a foot fetish. Oh, so getting the foot as close as possible in a really dynamic way with his erogenous zone. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've I've found that kind of crossover with a few of my clients. You know, I don't know how prevalent it is overall. If there's a study on these things, I would love for there to be the eroticism of like the foot and the leg Mm -hmm. with the actual like busting of the balls with said foot and leg. So is it important what kind of footwear you wear? For him, him, he definitely had a preference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He likes spiky shoes. Uh huh. Yeah. But because we were filming and a lot of filming, like platforms for clips don't allow blood, I think I was doing it barefoot. The first time I met him was at a play party, and it was a Christmas party. I was wearing these like sequined heels, and he was just like inviting people to kick him in the balls. And I used to play soccer, so uh-huh. I was like, oh, I gotta like get in on this. But he was already kind of like his balls had been busted to the point of like, you know, bleeding a little bit. Uh-huh. And so I was like, I don't want to mess up my nice, beautiful golden shoe. So I just tied a plastic garbage bag around it and proceeded to, you know, go at it. Yeah, I think people are often very proud of themselves Mm -hmm. when they accomplish or, like, take a beating worse than they've ever had before, for example. Um, And, yeah, I think creating that safe space or that container for these this, like, roughness to Mm -hmm. take place in is what allows that to be able to, what allows us to push the boundaries farther than we would have otherwise. What are the kind of attributes that you you wish that maybe people who weren't so open Mm. or weren't so in touch with their own desires could pick up from that community that you're a part of? The human imagination is so varied and broad and magical, you Mm -hmm. know, and we often maybe pathologize some of our own desires thinking they come from a place of trauma. But I think that's what it is to be vulnerable, right? To be able to vocalize these deep desires that you feel embarrassed or humiliated to have and to have somebody on the other other end to accept you 
for that and explore that with you. Mm-hmm. It can be a really healing experience. I think that's that's an, that's an amazing message. It's funny because I was thinking everything that you just said could also apply to what we want and hope. I'm just switching over to my professional world here for a second, I'm trying to think of like the most taboo thing in architecture. Okay, most taboo thing off the top of my head would be something like chopping down an entire rainforest mm-hmm. for the production <laughs> of this thing. Right? right, and if it can't be a reality, you can role play it somehow, and maybe it's like you know, yeah, you can just pretend like you're yeah. chopping down the whole rainforest. Like, like, I think the young architecture students today, and this is actually a generational difference, maybe between my generation and theirs a little bit. My generation was super serious. Like my generation was really all about architecture all the way, all night, all day. This generation actually feels way more inhibited to me because they're carrying a huge amount of collective guilt. Mm. They feel guilty for stuff they haven't even done. They feel guilty for straws. Wow. So I think they feel guilt for, for the sins of the previous generations as well as for ones that they can't quite quantify that they themselves know they're caught up in. Right. And then they also feel a huge sense of dread for the future. And those things to get taken together tend to make students, they produce their own inhibitions. And sometimes the role of their teachers, it maybe is something like the role, your professional role mm-hmm. as a dominatrix is to say, you know what? You have your highly individual wants and desires and needs and fantasies and fetishes. Mm-hmm. And actually those are the most valuable things that you can bring to the world because they force us to imagine different things. To see pictures of Lucy ball busting in her beautiful golden shoes, her Twitter handle is at Lucy the Mistress. The Ark was produced by Shelley Holcomb and the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Story editing by Kathy Huey at Our Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh. I'm Marika Trotter. More stories next month here at The Ark.